Great, this is our sixth week in our series titled More Prayer. Um, we have been looking over the past five weeks at uh, different ways in which we pray, different things we want to pray for. And uh, this is week six, so we're halfway through already, amazingly. Next week, we'll actually be taking a break. So next Sunday, we'll be returning to our series, Enjoying God, which we started the term with. We're going to do next Sunday and then come back to in December. And then over half term, we'll be having a a, a break. So there won't be any prayer gatherings uh, the week after this one for a week. But we are gathering this week in homes, Monday through Friday. So I'd really encourage you again, as we are week by week, Be committed, let's get together, let's pray, let's know the presence of God, let's enjoy him, let's seek God for the things that he's laid on our hearts. So uh, uh, make a choice, look at your your prayer guide if you haven't yet picked up one of these. If you're new here, grab one of these and uh, choose which of the prayer gatherings you're going to go to and get there this week and pray. Now we're taking week by week examples of biblical prayers that then teach us, help us learn how to pray. They help us to focus on praying the right things, help us to get our prayer priorities aligned. Sometimes we might wonder, how do we know we're praying the right thing? How do we know that we're praying actually the will of God? Well, a really good way of knowing that you're praying according to the will of God is if you pray prayers that God in his grace has given us in his word. So if we pray prayers that God has given us in scripture, we can be really sure that we're praying for the right things. And that's what we're seeking to do week by week. And today, this morning, we're going to be looking at a prayer in Paul's letter to the Philippians, and our theme this morning is more discipleship. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to read the first 11 verses. This is on page 1178 in the Bibles on your chairs. The first thing that Paul does is introduce himself and Timothy and describes who it is that he is writing to, who he will be praying for. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He then describes why he's praying for them. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's a great sentence, a great paragraph describing Paul's affection for the Philippians. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And then he describes what it is that he's praying for them, what he wants God to do in them, God to do for them. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Wow. Well, we've looked at the church in Philippi before. If you were here a year ago, last November, 
we were teaching through the book of Acts, and we got to Acts chapter 16, which describes when Paul and his companions first came to Philippi. And that was a really significant moment in the story of the Christian message spreading out. Up to that point, the Christian message had been uh, founded in Asia. Uh, Christianity is an Asian faith in that sense. That's where its origins are. And had gone to Africa. The Ethiopian eunuch had come to faith. So the gospel had gone to Asia, gone to Africa, but hadn't yet come to Europe. Came to Europe when Paul and his friends got in a boat, sailed across the Aegean Sea, landed in uh, Greece, came to Philippi, and preached the gospel. And that story in Acts 16 is a remarkable one because of the way in which God opens up the hearts of people to see Jesus, three very different people are described as Lydia, who's a successful independent businesswoman who's seeking after God, and she just has this kind of gentle, tender opening of her eyes to see who Jesus is as Paul speaks to her. And then there's a girl who's a slave girl, who's a slave literally, and also emotionally and spiritually, a tormented soul, and Paul speaks a word over her, and she's set free. And then Paul and his friends, because of what they're doing, because of them preaching the gospel, get thrown into jail and God sends a miracle, a sign and a wonder. There's an earthquake and Paul and his friends are released from their chains. And as a consequence of that, the Philippian jailer becomes a Christian as well, along with all his household. So that's the story of how the gospel first came to Philippi, how the gospel first came to Europe. And uh, Philippi is an interesting town. It's a town that was uh, built on a key road that went east to west across the Roman Empire, strategic trading route, and it was a Roman town planted in Greek territory. It was in the context uh, geographically of Greece, but uh, it was populated by Romans who'd been moved there to kind of guard the road. It's a small place by our modern standards, only perhaps 10 to 15,000 people, and uh, doesn't seem that there were any Jewish people there because when Paul went there, he didn't do what he normally did, which was to go to a synagogue and speak first to Jews. He couldn't find any Jews. So the first thing he did was go to a river where he hoped to find some people praying, which is where he met Lydia. So looks like tough ground, but in this tough ground, Paul has found, as he describes it here, partners in the gospel. That's a great phrase. I thank God because of our partnership in the gospel. And this group of Christians who've been formed in Philippi. They've got their house in order, they've got their church organized, they've appointed elders, they've appointed deacons, um, and they're called to be God's people, God's witnesses, God's disciples in this tough town. Now, what then is it to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? A description of disciple, where the word comes from, I found is this, disciple, one who follows another for the purpose of learning. A biblical borrowing from the Latin discipulus, pupil, student, follower. The word disciple comes from that Latin word discipulus. It's the same word that we get our word discipline from. A disciple is someone who is intentionally disciplined about following after and learning from someone else. And of course, for Christian disciples, this means that we are intentional. We're disciplined about learning to be like Jesus. He's the one whom we follow. And that's true whether we're disciples in Philippi 2,000 years ago or disciples here in BCP in 2019. Now, what then does it look like to be a disciple? Paul's prayer here for the Philippians really helps us to see, understand what it means to be a disciple. Actually, all the prayers 
that we're looking at in this series help us to understand what it is to be disciples of Jesus. And it's not really that complicated, although often people seem to be confused about discipleship, as if there's some kind of magic structure that we should follow or system we need to put in place to make disciples. Really, it's fairly straightforward. It's a, it's a following after Jesus. It's a learning to be like Jesus. It's a determination to reflect him, to be like him more and more. And that's something which affects the entirety of us as people. Our heads and our hearts and our hands all caught up, all determined, all disciplined in following after Jesus, being like him. So let's think about this in terms of our heads, our hearts, and our hands. First of all, our heads. Paul prays this way. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Now, a few weeks back, we were looking at Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, where he prays for them to have knowledge about God. It's important that as disciples of Jesus, we know about Jesus. And Paul says that they've got love. They love each other. They love Jesus. Actually, as you read the letter to the Philippians, you find that this seems to be a congregation where there is a, a high degree of love Uh, Some of the New Testament letters you read and Paul's writing to them to correct them because there's not love, there's disunity in their churches. But here in Philippi, there seems to be a lot of unity, a lot of love. But Paul wants that love to be abounding in to know more and more knowledge of God. And that's because disciples are students we're called to learn. A disciple is one who follows another for the purpose of learning. So it's not just the Those of you here this morning who are students who are called to be students, all of us who are following Jesus are called to be students of Jesus. And that means that we need to acquire information, knowledge, understanding about Jesus. This is why teaching is central to the Christian faith. Think about the example of Jesus himself. What Jesus did was to go around teaching. Jesus was a teacher. He was a rabbi. Wherever he went, he taught. He would gather crowds on hillsides and teach them. He got into a boat to teach a crowd on the shore. He would go into the temple courts and gather people around him and teach them. He'd get his disciples in smaller groups and teach them. Jesus was a teacher. And then when we read in the book of Acts about the spread of the gospel as the disciples then go forth, it often says that the word spread. The disciples went out teaching about Jesus, teaching people who he was, what he was like, what that meant. Now this is why we place a high priority on teaching too. It's why we do what I'm doing now. It's why we give time every Sunday morning to teaching. We gather to worship, we gather to pray, we gather to break bread, we gather to be together, to fellowship together, and we gather for teaching from the Word of God. It's essential to our being disciples. It's why that we do all kinds of other things. It's why in our small group structure we say, get into the Bible, teach one another. It's why we encourage you to be part of community Bible reading groups so you can teach each other. It's why often on a Sunday I'll recommend particular books and say, this is helpful, read it, because that's the way that we learn. It's why we do things like the theology course that we run and we'll be starting again in January. It's why we encourage things like come to the church weekend next July, come to the advance uh, conference in November because they'll be teaching Disciples of Jesus are committed to learning. We shouldn't be shy about that. We need to be committed to it, to learning, to understanding, to knowing more of him. 
But this, this teaching that we pursue and this knowledge that we wish to acquire should never be merely academic. We're not pursuing knowledge for the sake of knowledge. You know, it's possible to do that. Maybe you're one of those people who enjoys that. You always want to be the person who always wins the quiz. And that's, to be honest, that's me. I get very depressed if I don't win the quiz. I always think I should. I want to know. And you might be like that as well. Maybe you're not. But we're not talking about that kind of knowledge here. It's not a knowledge for the sake of knowledge. It's a knowledge because of love. It's love for Jesus. You want to know Jesus more. You want to love him more. And to love him more, you need to know him more. And the more that you know him, the more that you will love him. That's what it's about. We're learning about Jesus in order to love Jesus more, to follow him better, to know him more, to be more like him. It's knowledge and love abounding together. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, we need to be committed to learning about Jesus. But there's another dimension to this which Paul brings into focus. He prays, I want your love. I want you to know more and more, to have more knowledge and depth of insight. I want you to have depth of insight. Paul wants us to have a a deep, wise knowledge of God. Our knowledge of God is not about stacking up information so we can acquire university credits. No, it's actually about being wise. It's about learning wisdom. It's having a, a depth of insight. And we need to think about the context in which Paul is writing and the people for whom he's praying, that he's, he's not writing to the sophisticated Athenians. He's writing to blue-collar Philippi. And it's really important to see that. Actually, it's interesting that in the Bible, in the New Testament, we don't have a letter to the Athenians. It's not an epistle to the Athenian church. We know that Paul went to Athens. Acts 17, we read that Paul went to Athens and he did in Athens what was required in Athens. He went to the Areopagus, which was a place where the philosophers would gather, and he debated with the philosophers in Athens on their own terms. It was like he dropped up in Oxford in our context and engaged with the Oxford academics on their terms. But there's no epistle to the Athenians in the New Testament. There is an epistle to the Philippians, and the Philippians were not like the Athenians. The Philippians were not highly educated, highly sophisticated, highly intellectual. This was a working-class, blue-collar town where probably most people wouldn't have had much education at all. And these are the people to whom Paul is writing and saying, I want you to know more and have a greater depth of insight. And the Philippian believers could know more and have more insight because not only were they in Philippi, but they were in Christ. This is how Paul starts the letter. To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus who happen to be at Philippi. You live in Philippi. Philippi is a working class, blue collar place. There's not much education. There's no university. But you are in Christ. That's your primary identifier. That's your primary definition. And in Christ, there's a whole new world opened up to you. Your minds can be opened up so you can know things and so you can have a depth of wisdom and of insight. And that's true for us too. makes no difference if you left school at 16 with no qualifications or whether you've got a PhD. If you, if you are in Christ, if you're a follower of his, a disciple of his, you can learn, you can know, you can have insight. And disciples of Jesus a call to act in knowledge and wisdom. Disciples of Jesus commit to learning. 
We need to pray. We need to pray for ourselves that we would abound in knowledge and depth of insight, that our heads would be discipled after Jesus. Second area which, where we need to be disciples is in our hearts. And this is my prayer, that you may be able to discern what is best, or as the ESV translation puts it, that you might be able to approve what is excellent. This speaks about an emotional heart response that reflects and honors Jesus. There's this automatic gut reaction that says yes to what is good and no to what is corrupt. This raises a really interesting question about how you make moral decisions. So the whole field of understanding morality is fascinating. It's this brilliant book by Jonathan Haidt, a cultural psychologist, The Righteous Mind, in which he uh, uh, describes or explores uh, where morality comes from and the way that people think. And the way the book begins is like this. Where does morality come from? I'm going to tell you a brief story. Pause after you read it and decide whether the people in the story did anything morally wrong. A family's dog was killed by a car in front of their house. They had heard that dog meat was delicious, so they cut up the dog's body and cooked it and ate it for dinner. Nobody saw them do this. Right or wrong? Few terms of country and painters are right with it, other people not so sure. If you are like most of the well-educated people in my studies, you felt an initial flash of disgust but you hesitated before saying the family had done anything morally wrong. After all, the dog was dead already, so they didn't hurt it, right? And it was their dog, so they had a right to do what they wanted with the carcass, no? If I pushed you to make a judgment, odds are you'd give me a nuanced answer, something like, well, I think it's disgusting, and I think they should have just buried the dog, but I wouldn't say it was morally wrong. Here's a more challenging story, which I've used in other contexts, but isn't appropriate for Sunday morning, so we'll move on. What um, Jonathan Haidt describes is that people's morality, their gut responses to moral issues is like an elephant, that our emotions, our heart is like an elephant and our intellect is like the rider. And the rider is in control of the elephant and directs it where it's meant to go. But if you suddenly hit a moral question, the elephant takes over and the elephant is far stronger than the rider. And if the elephant wants to go in one direction, there's nothing much that the rider can do about it. And our morality, our heart inclination is like that. It's like the elephant. You're confronted by a moral choice and it's your emotions that respond first. And then maybe later on your kind of intellectual thought process catches up. Now, Paul's prayer for the Philippians, that you might be able to discern what is best, really is a prayer that the elephant gets discipled, that disciples have hearts that lean towards what is good, that the heart of a disciple is an automatic bias towards approving what is excellent, what is best, what is good, rather than leaning towards what is not good, what is corrupt, what is Wicked. Of course, the next question then is what defines what is best? What defines what is excellent? And of course, the answer is Jesus. This is what the Apostle Peter says, 1 Peter 1. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. How do we get our hearts recalibrated so that we discern things right, so that we do what is right, so that we live in holiness. 
doesn't mean that we all start to think exactly the same way on every issue. We're not all going to do that. But, it, but Paul's assumption is that morally, the hearts of disciples will lean the right way. Now, how does that happen? How do we discipline? How do we disciple our hearts so that the automatic response we make to things is the right one? Well, part of that comes through teaching. It's as we learn that our hearts do begin to change. Just look at the headings the Bible translators have put into this letter to the Philippians. How do you have a heart which does the right thing while well, live worthy of the gospel? Imitate Christ's humility. Do everything without grumbling. As Paul teaches those things, he's expecting not only people's heads to be changed, but people's hearts to be changed as well. Teaching is important. We no longer live in ignorance. That's what the Apostle Peter says. You no longer live in ignorance. If you have come to Jesus, you're no longer ignorant of the standard to which Jesus calls you. If you know Jesus, you know that he has a standard to which he calls you. Another way that we learn to discipline our hearts is by following the example of others. Paul is unembarrassed about telling the Philippians to follow his example. Over the page, chapter 3, verse 17, he says this, "'Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, "'and just as you have us as a model, "'keep your eyes on those who live as we do.'" This is quite a remarkable, quite an audacious thing for Paul to say. How are you going to live in a way which honors Jesus? Well, live like I do. Copy me, follow me, and follow people who are like me. That's quite an audacious thing to say, but that's such a helpful model for discipleship. We're called to imitate Christ, and we are called to imitate those who are more like Christ than we are. Disciples are not too proud to deliberately, intentionally emulate those who are further on the road than they are. Paul says, copy me. That's how you're going to learn to be a disciple. One of the things that we've done here to try and help us with this is to uh, produce this discipleship grid. We've got some of these out the back. If you haven't had one before and want to grab one, it's, uh, the danger of this is it, could just, it does just look like a kind of a spreadsheet with things to tick off, which isn't how it's meant to function. It's to help us think and learn and act in the way that disciples do. And An example we give here is the example of driving. It's quite possible to have many thousands of hours of driving experience, but to not be a skillful driver. The reality is that most of us develop bad driving habits once we've got through our driving test. We might be competent enough to get about on the roads and avoid accidents, but that doesn't mean that we have grown in our driving skills. In order to do that, we would need to intentionally learn new skills. There would need to be a process of improving our driving. This might include ongoing study of the highway code, time spent driving on a skid pan, driving at high speeds on a racetrack, taking an advanced motoring qualification, and so on. Few people bother to improve their driving in this way because it doesn't seem worth the effort. But we should be more diligent when it comes to discipleship. Reality is that a discipled driver will automatically react differently from all those of us who've been driving for years but have never really bothered to learn new skills. Someone who has really put the effort in to learn, to go and drive on a skid pan, to go and get instruction on a racetrack, 
when the moment of danger comes, when they hit a patch of oil or a patch of ice, they will automatically respond differently from how the rest of us would because we just don't have the skills. The, the heart has been changed, so the reaction is different. The elephant has been discipled. Now, for those of us who know Jesus, we need to be those who are diligent in training our hearts so there's an automatic reaction to lean towards what is good rather than leaning towards what will do us harm. And so like Paul, we need to pray. We need the Spirit's help to work in our hearts. We need the Lord to work on our hearts so that our hearts are changed. We need our hearts to be discipled. And then finally, we need our hands to be discipled. And this is my prayer that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Purity is one of our key words here at Gateway. We have three words which define our sense of mission and purpose, adventure, purity, and compassion. Purity, a key word for us. And you know, people are looking for purity. There's a desire in people for cleanness, You see that reflected in all kinds of ways in our world around us, what people are pursuing. You see it in the Extinction Rebellion protests which are happening at the moment in London. I was up there in London on Thursday and uh, people protesting all over the place and causing a lot of aggro. There were uh, Extinction Rebellion protesters on the top of tube trains and then other passengers dragging them off and beating them up. It was all getting very ugly. But fundamentally, what are the Extinction Rebellion protesters looking for? They're looking for purity. They're looking for a world which is not polluted, which is clean, which is pure, which is wholesome, which is whole. And that actually reflects a desire in all of us. We want what is pure. We want what is good. And where do you find it? You don't get pure by washing yourself in muck. You don't get clean by washing yourself in mud. No, true purity is found in Jesus Christ. He's the perfect one. He's the unsullied one. He's the unpolluted one. If you want to find purity, come to the one who is pure. Come to the source. Come to Jesus. And the miracle of miracles is that when we come to Jesus, when we put our faith in him, put our trust in him, he declares us to be pure. He declares us to be righteous. He declares us to be in the right. The biblical imagery that we are washed in his blood. We are cleansed. We are declared to be pure, holy in God's sight. If you and not yet a follower of Jesus, but you know in your heart of hearts that you want to get clean. The way that you find cleanliness, purity, is in Christ. When we've come to that place, when we know that Jesus has washed us, cleansed us, purified us, that needs to be lived out. Disciples are going to put this into practice because disciples are followers. They're students. And so... A disciple does what they see their teacher doing. If we're disciples, we're going to want to follow Christ's example. This is what it says in the Psalm, Psalm 24. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Disciples of Jesus are declared to be pure, to be righteous, that is reflected in the purity of our hearts and in the purity of our hands, the purity of our actions. What does that mean practically? 
It means that our hands are full, as Paul prays here, of the fruit of righteousness. What does that look like, to have hands which are pure, which are full of the fruit of righteousness? It means that we use our hands, both metaphorically and literally, in a way which displays that. It means that we use our hands to pray for people and to bless people. It means that we use our hands to serve other people. It means that we put our hands in our pockets and don't leave them there, but take them out full of the stuff which God has already given us, and we give it back to the Lord as an offering, as an act of worship. It means that we take hold of the hand of somebody who's a bit further ahead of us on the road in following Jesus and ask them to draw us on, and we take hold of the hand of somebody who's a bit behind us and say, come with me and I can help you to live more like Jesus. It means that we use our hands like Jesus did to bring blessing and health and life to others. And it means that there can't be any corner of our lives over which we erect a no-entry sign to God. can't be any corner of our lives in which we say, God, you haven't got access here. You're not welcome here. This is where I stay in control. No. Disciples of Jesus, whose head and hearts and hands are oriented towards following him, have this disciplined commitment to be like him, to know him, to follow him, There'll be nothing where we say, you're not welcome here, Lord. To be a disciple is to be all in, no holds barred, no compromise. If you watch the England-Australia rugby game yesterday, which was a magnificent sporting moment as we crushed the Wallabies, you see the players were no holds barred. Literally, they were all in complete commitment, an exceptional, an extraordinary level of commitment to play and to win the game. No holds barred. And that's how we're to be as disciples, that our heads and our hearts and our hands are to be fully in, fully committed. But the thing is, if we try and do this by our own will, if we try and do this in our own strength, we'll just end up (coughs) exhausted. Like some of those players coming off the pitch yesterday, barely able to walk because of the extent to which they'd expended themselves. We don't want to do that as disciples. We don't, get, we don't want just to exhaust ourselves in trying to manufacture discipleship. No, we need to know the grace of God. We need to know God's grace at work in us. This is why the Apostle Paul prays for the Philippians and he doesn't just give them a list of what they should and shouldn't do. Do you notice that? He, he prays for them. He doesn't simply start this letter and say, hey, Philippians, you're doing well, but in order to be disciples, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. No, he prays for them that they would know God's help. They would know God's equipping, God's empowering in these things. We need God's help to be God's disciples. And so we should pray, pray for ourselves the way that Paul prays for his friends In Philippi, we should pray that there would be genuine love amongst us for Jesus and for one another. We should pray for ourselves that we might abound more and more in knowledge. We should pray for ourselves that we'd have depth of insight. We should pray that our heads would be discipled, that we'd learn and understand more of who God is and what he's done for us. We should pray for ourselves that we would be able to discern what is best. Lord, would you... Please, would you discipline my heart? Would you retrain the elephant of my emotions so they run in the right direction, not in the wrong one? I can't do this in myself, Lord, but you can work it in me. We need to pray for ourselves that we would be pure and blameless 
for the day of Christ, laying hold of the promise that he has declared us to be pure and blameless, righteous in his sight. So, Lord God, as your disciples, may we live in a way that reflects that. May we be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. May the works of our hands, may the actions, the things that we do display the reality that we're followers of Jesus. May it not be that we go through life and there's nothing distinct about us. We're just like everybody else, just good people. No, may there be something about us which displays Jesus, who you are and what you are like. And Lord, would you do this in us, through us, for us, to your glory and your praise. What we need is our heads and our hearts and our hands working together. The things that we know, the things that we feel, the things that we do, they all need to be aligned in pursuit of Jesus. Disciples are those who are committed to learning from their teacher, being like him, following him, becoming like him, displaying him, and doing all this for the glory and the praise of God. Let's be Christ's disciples. Let's have our heads, our hearts, and our hands oriented after him. Let's pursue him with everything that we have, knowing his grace working powerfully in us to change us and draw us after him and make us more and more like him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and let's pray together. Let's pray this prayer together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you intend for us to be more and more like Jesus. We can't do this on our own. Would you enable us to love you more and know you more that we might live in a way that honors you more? Let us be disciples who bring glory to our King. Amen. Yes, Lord Jesus, I do pray that for us. So I pray for us as Paul prayed for his friends at Philippi that uh, we would know these things, we would understand these things, we would feel these things, we would do these things. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who are struggling in any of these areas. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling to learn and understand and act wisely. I pray that as they come to you, as they are in Christ, they would find that that opens up a new world to them, opens up different ways and better ways of thinking. And Jesus, that this would not just be about education or intellect, but would be the reality of being found in Christ, that our, our minds might be increasingly conformed to the mind of Christ. We'd understand, we'd know, we'd act in wisdom. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling with that, that you, in your grace, would come to them now. Lord, I pray for those who are, whose emotions keep running away from them, maybe leading them into making poor decisions or acting in ways that don't reflect you. I pray our hearts might be discipled that you get hold of our hearts, King Jesus, and that our emotions would be governed by what is right, that we would be trained in this, that we would, just by reaction, just by gut instinct, choose what is good, what is pure, what is holy, what honors you. And Lord, for those whose hands maybe are leading them in the ways they shouldn't go, who maybe got their hands stuck in their pockets, need to get them out, those who need to use their hands to bless more, curse less, to serve others more. Lord, I pray that our hands might be full of the fruit of righteousness. Well, thank you. You've called us to purity. 
You're the one who declares us to be righteous. It's through you that we can ascend your holy mountain with pure hearts, pure hands. And I pray that we'll be disciples who know that, love that, and live that way. So, God, would you help us? Would you help us in these things? Let us be disciples of Christ. No holds barred, no compromise. In it, 100%, head, heart, and hands following you. In your name and for your glory, we ask it. Amen. Amen. Let's come and worship him.